Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In We'll Play Till We Die, Journeys Across a Decade of Revolutionary Music in the Muslim World, Mark Levine dives into the revolutionary youth music cultures of Muslim societies before, during, and beyond the waves of resistance that shook the region from Morocco to Pakistan. This sequel to his celebrated 2008 music travelogue, Heavy Metal Islam, Rock Resistance, and the Struggle for the Soul of Islam, shows how some of the world's most extreme music not only helped inspire and define region-wide protest, but also exemplifies the beauty and diversity of youth cultures throughout Muslim societies. In our conversation, we discussed early metal scenes in Southwest Asia, the Arab uprisings, hip-hop culture, the rise of electronic music, musicians and fans organizing and protesting, the circulation of music through global platforms, the role of subcultures, harassment, imprisonment, and police brutality towards youth, the role of women in music scenes, and collaboration and authorship. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now here's my conversation with Mark Levine about Play Till We Die, Journeys Across a Decade of Revolutionary Music in the Muslim World, published with the University of California Press in 2022. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I really enjoyed reading this this book. We'll play till we die. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, I've been excited about your your previous work in the same vein, and uh, I'm I'm hoping we can connect the dots there as well. Um, but before we get into all that. Um, you know, you do all sorts of stuff. So um, can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of uh, what brought you into studying Muslim societies, studying music and popular culture, uh, kind of what was your kind of academic journey, so to speak? Sure. Um, my introduction into Muslim societies, first of all, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, which is today known as Little Palestine, but um, it wasn't yet Little Palestine then, but it was just starting to have uh, Palestinians and Arabs moving in. But for me, I think what started it, strangely enough, was rock and roll music. Um, you know, I just started hearing this amazing scales and sounds. I was a classical guitar player and then a guitar player. I'd hear bands like Led Zeppelin or other bands that were using these kind of Arabic phrasings. And I remember reading an interview with Robert Plant where someone said he's he's like Um Kulthum. 
I don't know if that's really a great comparison for either of them, <laughs> but it was, but I was like, who's this person? And then I looked her up. I was like, wow, that is true. You can hear the scales. You can hear this guy's been in the Arab world. And then Jimmy Page did interviews about going to Morocco and all of this. Like, I don't know where these guys went, but if that's what it took to get that music, that's where I'm going. So kind of literally starts with music. And then um, in high school, even though I was a Jewish kid, I went to a Catholic high school. How a Jewish kid going to a Catholic high school leads one to spend their life studying Islam, <laughs> I don't know. But that's but it was basically started my fascination and love of studying religion. That's what it did. And, and it was an amazing experience from the standpoint of obviously learning the Bible, both uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. And then when I, I was in a conservatory, when I left to go on tour, decided to go back to school, but didn't want to do conservatory because um, I, I already kind of got what I needed out of that to be a guitar player. Um, and when I went, I went to Hunter College in New York and studied religion and Hebrew Bible with two of the greatest teachers ever, Murray Lichtenstein, who's PhD was on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Barbara Sproul, who was uh, who was one of the founders of kind of studying creation myths, uh, amazing historian of religion. So I wound up with a degree in um, basically Hebrew and Judaic studies and comparative religion with a focus on tribal religions. And at that point, I had been come involved with Amnesty International and also working as a musician. I started meeting in New York some musicians from the Arab world. And it just kind of clicked that uh, what I should do is, is, since I already knew Hebrew, was study Arabic. And so I started studying Arabic uh, the summer before grad school and wound up going to NYU and um, you know, getting a degree, uh, first a master's and then PhD in what was then called Near East Languages and Literatures, but quickly became Middle East and Islamic Studies. What the difference is, we could do a whole other podcast <laughs> on, but that change in the 90s meant something really big. I remember the fights over it. Uh, and that's basically, you know, how I spent 10 years at NYU uh, you know, first learning Arabic, then some Persian and Turkish and, and, you know, obviously going to Palestine, Israel for my dissertation. But uh, even though my dissertation became more focused on history, specifically urban history and comparative nationalisms and colonialisms, I still loved studying Islamic texts and loved studying Islam and you know, I, I learned, uh, you know, I learned Persian specifically to be able to read Ali Shariati and Khomeini and Jalal Ali Ahmed in Persian, or at least know enough Persian to understand the originals so I wouldn't be stuck just with translations. And also for my PhD, I was, um, I was using the Islamic court records in Jaffa, which had been used a few times, but not really for my period, which was late 19th and early 20th centuries. And of course, as you start reading through them and getting used to reading the, the script and, and the kind of formulas that are involved, you really have to up your game with understanding the everyday meanings of Sharia, of, of, of Islamic law, and how it, how it exists in the real world versus just in the medieval texts that were the sources. So that was always very interesting to me. And um, finally, uh, towards the end of my dissertation research, I started really focusing on when I was looking at the gentrification of Jaffa and Tel Aviv, I started focusing on the emergence of what we today call globalization or neoliberal globalization around the Middle East and North Africa. And one of the key, you know, places or or types of groups that were most uh, cognizant of these changes and most opposed to them were Islamists. So 
um, when I started reading through the literature on, you know, what would be called Aulama or globalization, much of the really interesting critiques came from religious uh, intellectuals, and a lot of it was picking up on the on um, on uh, <clears throat> Al Afghani's work, or of course Shariati's work, or Jalal Ali Ahmed's idea of West toxification. There's so much early, even Said Qutb had uh, some very interesting critiques of capitalism that were very resonant and anticipatory of critiques of neoliberalism. Uh, things that weren't being said by people criticizing it from other directions who were focused on the economic component entirely, let's say. So that really kept me going in Islamic studies uh, was looking at more of the contemporary implications of Islam. And um, and then just obviously when I was traveling around, traveling around Israel-Palestine, I was often interviewing people from the various uh, Palestinian parties within the Israeli political system, both of which, or at least one of which, had a religious bent. And finally, I guess what really solidified it, ironically, was going to Iraq after the U.S. invasion. Um, I was there uh, not under the pay of the of the coalition provisional authority, uh, but unembedded, just hanging around with Iraqis and traveling around the country and trying to understand the changes that were happening as as the insurgency started picking up. And naturally, of course, I was meeting with a lot of different people who were religiously grounded or influenced in the South and Najaf or Karbala was, you know, parts of the Shia establishment, but also, uh, you know, people who represented the kind of insurgent, the Sunni insurgency. Uh, and it was just really interesting to hear how they were reconstructing Islam literally before my eyes to fit this resistance to the U.S. occupation. But what also became fascinating to me even more and led directly to the books and the book before that, Heavy Metal Islam, was that while I was chasing around all these, you know, the mullahs and the <clears throat> ulama during the day, um, uh, in the evenings I would wind up meet, finding these long-haired Iraqi guys who were invariably musicians like me, and we would just start talking and hanging out and drinking tea and maybe sometimes playing guitar. And they were so much more interesting than the religious guys, because the religious guys more or less stuck to a very defined script. It was usually you could almost, you know, fall asleep halfway through and wake up and know exactly what they said because they was very much formulaic. But the artists, the musicians, the playwrights, the, uh, you know, the um, writers, they were just blowing my mind. They were just teaching me things every day, profound things. So that's when I realized, hmm. Maybe I should put all this music to actual good use and actually look at artists as opposed to the people that everyone thinks, especially after 9-11, since this is a crusade against Islam. Obviously, I was out to prove them wrong by finding, you know, talking to religious Muslims. And I quickly realized that wasn't actually what I was good at or what I was made to do. I was actually made to talk to the bad Muslims, <laughs> the musicians <laughs> and, the, and the artists and, you know, everyone else who were trying to carve out a space to have multiple identities and, and had a critique that was much closer to my own of the whole thing. So that's sort of the journey. And once I started hanging out with musicians, that was it. That, then I never looked back because that's just always much more fun for me. Um, than, and a lot of them were also religious, of course, and were also some of them were even you know, trained in religion, but, um, but it was, so it was the combination, especially 
especially some of the religious scholars who were also very interested and supportive of music. I met some in, in Iran. I met some in, in, um, in Iraq, in, in um, Lebanon. And these guys who were truly trying to fight against this idea that music was haram, that it was prohibited uh, in Islam, which was a general idea that many non-Muslims imagine, and also many Muslims, they were really trying to change the tide of that theological argument in a moment when conservatism was sweeping across the Middle East and North Africa, and where musicians and artists were being threatened by you know, conservative religious forces. Uh, what their struggles were, were just, first of all, incredibly brave <clears throat> and courageous. And second of all, really about the heart of what is religion? You know, how do you define what Islam, quote unquote, is and who gets to do that? And why does it matter? And, you know, can is Islam really the religion that the conservatives who have the loudest voices say it is? Or is there something else in there? And that's what I, you know, started focusing on when I began the research into metal and other forms of Youth music in the region. Yeah, and so for for all these projects you've been talking about, um, a, a lot of it is metal, um, but you also use the term extreme youth, youth music, and you know you talk about other genres, and there's a kind of blending uh, in some places. Uh, can you kind of just talk about like the musical terrain that you're talking about sure. when you use this term extreme youth music? <clears throat> like what what's it about? What's the kind of uh, spirit behind it? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, the idea really came to me well into this second book. The first book I wrote was called Heavy Metal Islam, and it all came out of the, the shock I felt at learning that there were metal scenes in the Muslim world, which was also a shock to my own ignorance, because how could I, someone who was progressive, read and even studied, you know, studied at the knee of Edward Said, how could I literally not know that there are metal scenes in the region and then be surprised when there are. Like, how could there be metal scenes in the Middle East? Of course there are metal scenes in the Middle East, just like there were metal scenes in the Soviet Union or anywhere else where they were officially frowned upon. And um, so part of it, you know, emerged out of me trying to understand my own ignorance and why even someone who was focused on setting culture in the region, when I thought of music, I thought of the oud and the tarab and traditional music, but of course there was all this incredible, what they call shabby or popular music. And even though, you know, I worked with musicians, Arab or Muslim or Iranian musicians who played so-called Western forms of popular music when I was living in New York, for example, it didn't occur to me that there were these kinds of seemingly quintessentially Western or American European forms of music in the region. It really surprised me. So I first had to process the ignorance behind my surprise, why it would I wouldn't have realized how natural that is at the start. And once I, I, I understood that, I, um, I just fell in love with trying to understand who are these kids? Who are these metalheads? What does it mean to be a metalhead in the Middle East? And once, and that was largely the first book, because at that point, the two, two or three other main forms that I look at, hip-hop was just taking off in the Middle East in the early 2000s. So it wasn't as developed or as interesting a scene, although I did talk about that in the first book. Uh, punk and hardcore was already there, especially in, in, in the Maghreb, because of the really strong French punk scene. So there were a decent amount of Moroccan punks, and they kind of overlap with Moroccan metalheads. Uh, also Tunis as well. 
Um, and, and of course, Israel, not Palestine, but Israel had a, a, a really interesting punk scene. Some of them were very anti-Zionist, so it was very interesting. But um, slowly, that book finished in 2008. <clears throat> and the next book, the one we're talking about, We'll Play Till We Die, basically picks up the day the other one ends. I just kept chronicling the same people and the same scenes in the same countries. So it's together between the two books, about 20 years of ethnographic research. But by the mid later 2000s, hip hop had surpassed metal as kind of the dominant uh, youth music among any kids who were kind of outside of the norm, right? Who were, who were uh, kids who would not, you know, were kind of into different subcultures. So uh, hip hop and hip hop was a world I knew well and had played in and knew a lot of, you know, worked with a lot of well-known hip hop people here. So it was very easy to move into the hip hop world there as well. And also in the 2000s, as the technology really improved to where anyone could have a personal computer and a microphone and, you know, some pirated software off the web, there, the the um, electronic music scene in the Middle East also really took off. Not surprisingly, when you think about one of the most important uh, one of the most important electronic artists ever, one of the founders of sort of um, modern synthesis you know, was, uh, was an Egyptian, um, was an Egyptian, um, musician. Um, so you think about this and you realize that there's a lot of, and the more I looked at it, the more I realized that all of this music was rooted in actually scales and sounds and musical concepts that actually originated in the Muslim world. And then through hundreds of years became part of Europe or through the blues, went to America. And in many ways, it was returning home when it returned to the region. Um, just for one example, the, the guy, basically the godfather of heavy metal guitar is Dick Dale. Most people who are a little older would remember him. The founder of surf guitar, uh, Miserloo, for example, his famous hit. If anyone's watched Pulp Fiction, they know that song. And of course, Miserloo is just Musser, uh, Egypt. And Dick Dale's re real name was Richard Mansour. He was Lebanese. And he, he grew up playing oud in his family's restaurant, like outside of Detroit. And so he just took the oud, the, 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 the way, the technique of playing oud, did it on electric guitar, turned it up to 11, and we have voila, surf guitar. So even there, there's so much when you start digging. And of course, hip-hop as well. When hip-hop goes to the Middle East, it's going to places, whether it's the Arab world, whether it's Iran, whether it's Turkey, that have poetic traditions which go back, you know, a thousand years, two thousand years. So doing hip-hop is as natural, even more natural for um, people living in the region than it would have been for people living in the Bronx when it started. And then again, with the electronic dance music that became really popular. Again, you have um, this, you know, the use of electronic instruments and synthesizers was never just unique to the US or Europe. It, it was also uh, part of the landscape and the sound in the Middle East. Uh, a lot of it also because of the film industries and the way they learned to manipulate sound for soundtracks and such. So extreme youth music to me are all the forms of youth music which are either politically or sonically or both 
extreme. So you could have metal, for example, that it wouldn't really be EYM because it would be maybe what we would call hair metal or just, you know, someone doing uh, covers of uh, Guns N' Roses or something. But if you have a metal band or kids who are really into extreme death metal or doom or black metal, that's extreme metal. And the same thing with hip hop. If you're into commercial hip hop, that's one thing. But if you're into gangster rap or hardcore, really political hip hop, and especially the sounds that are much more intense, um, that would be more like uh, what, what I would call extreme EYM. And the same thing with hardcore and even even acoustic music, even someone like Rami Assam, the Egyptian singer who became, you know, it was a nobody literally until till the 18 day protests in Cairo. And he was just a metalhead, you know, who and a singer who came there and just started playing essentially a metal chord progression on an acoustic guitar and chant and singing the chants he was hearing and that became Irhal, probably uh, the most famous song of the revolutionary era in the Arab world. So everywhere I looked, metal was there. Everywhere I looked, the people who were doing the most interesting music were making it one way or another extreme and that extreme extremeness represented um, represented a kind of subculture that had become a counterculture that had become politicized and then in some cases actually became revolutionary and that and what I've been trying to look at is the relationship between the music and the political inclinations and what we might call praxis of the young people who are the fans and artists mm. yeah and I want to I want to tease that out move that move to revolutionary culture but I, I want to kind of just uh, from like a author's perspective um you know you kind of do this unique thing in this book where you um you work collaboratively which i you know yeah. not, is not totally unique but the way you do it um you do it almost uh through a fusion of your identities as both a musician and then as a, a scholar um so could you talk a little bit about you know, your insider and outsider perspective yeah. to the various communities, you, you, you know, you kind of go in and out from, from these various yeah. connections. And then, uh, like, you know, your notion of collaboration, and then the authorial mm -hmm. voice that you bring. Well, that's, that to me is the centerpiece of my work today. Um, I was actually just spent the last few days with a, a dear colleague, by the name of Jim Donaghy from Ulster University, who's one of the only other people I know working in popular music in the Muslim world who uses what we call indigenous theories and methodologies, meaning methodologies and theories developed by indigenous scholars and practitioners, mostly North America and Australia, and also Mexico, Chiapas. There's There's been this rise, in, and, and also uh, Australia and, and New Zealand. There's been a rise in the idea of of how indigenous people should study themselves rather than the way Western people or usually colonizers would study them. And of course, we all know the colonial roots of ethnography. And, um, and at the same time, so basically, by the time I got into the metal scenes and studying them, it, there, the landscape of the Middle East in terms of languages and in terms of the ability of people who live there to reach out, especially artists, to reach out to the rest of the world had changed fundamentally with the beginnings of the Internet, obviously. People now had a way to get their voice out there. Also, 
as you might know, I think we're somewhat near the same age. When I first started going to places like Egypt in the 90s or Syria or wherever, you had to speak Arabic. You know, people didn't really speak English except for a very small subset. Today, of course, it's completely different. Everyone just let, you know, humors me for five minutes and then switches to English because everyone invariably speaks much. It's like going to Sweden now. Everyone speaks better English than I do. So there's a massive shift in the and because of that, they and they have access to everything on the Internet. They have their own blogs. They have their own magazines. They have their own music that they put out there. They get 30, 40 million views on YouTube. So it's a completely different universe now. But even when I was doing when I started this in the mid 2000s, like 2004 or five, I realized, you know, I couldn't really bring an authorial voice, which was in in a way authoritarian in some way, because to try to think that I could somehow represent these people or I could interpret that what they're doing needs my interpretation felt a little bit strange to me. I don't want to say it felt Orientalist or colonial, uh, because certainly there are times when it is very necessary to bring more of your own experiences and your own interpretive schemas or heuristic schemas into writing about the people you're studying. But for me, I had a strange insider-outsider thing. As a musician, I had immediate entree, and a musician who spoke Arabic, which is probably the difference, and some Persian. Um, so when I went to Iran, but I had access to people as an insider. Um, not a complete insider, because obviously I'm, I wasn't Egyptian or I wasn't Palestinian or I wasn't Tunisian or whatever, but I speak Arabic and I was a real musician and I knew the music. So we could bond immediately. And that allowed for a level, I think, them to feel comfortable that I wasn't coming to just be extractive. And I think so much of scholarship, especially kind of ethnographic work, is still, if you're not careful, extractive. Even if you're trying to be good about it, you're still taking knowledge and people's histories and writing it up and putting your name on it. And I just didn't feel comfortable this time around, even though I don't think I did that that time. And I was very conscious about always making sure I was accurately representing people and really putting out their stories, acting as a conduit, rather than trying to interpret and say, this is my understanding of it. When it came to this book, I thought, that's not good enough anymore, because they literally, why do they even need me? You know, they don't need me to reach. I, if I do a YouTube video, seven people watch it. If they do a YouTube people, seven million people watch it. So there's a kind of skew in, in, um, in, in each of our data. There's no function I fulfill unless we're creating something together. And so that's why it was really important to me to to not just interview artists, but collaborate with them. And, you know, I've already done collaborative work with them musically. Um, but I thought it'd be really interesting to have them be part of the writing process and write collaboratively about the scenes that they are part of. And it comes out of this idea that I developed with an Australian colleague of mine, um, Lucia Sorbera at Sydney University, who also works on indigenous studies and Arab feminism. And we come up with this idea of collaborative ontologies, you know, basically together with the people who we are, who we've been studying and working with, creating a, a new understanding of reality together that we then share. And so that's actually something unique. It's not just me, uh, you know, amplifying their voice alone, which I'm, I'm happy to do, but they don't need me to do that. It's not really that interesting for people anymore, for someone to come even, you know, but as a musician, 
And as someone who knows the region intimately after studying it for 30 years and knowing the language and so on, I had the ability to culturally and musically think of things in a way that was close to them. And then we could create something much more unique together. So that was behind the collaborative uh, work. And then the last chapter, which was four of us writing, uh, myself, um, and then a scholar of Iranian music and of Turkish music and of Indonesian music, um, all of whom look at popular music, especially metal, hip hop, etc. You know, we wanted to write that as a kind of not a manifesto, but just a kind of this is what we've been doing collectively. If you add up all the all the years with the four of us have been working for, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years. Right. If each of us has been working 15, 20 years in the region. And this is what we think should be the future forward for studying and working with artists and looking at cultural production in the Middle East and North Africa and larger Muslim world. Yeah, it, it was really uh, refreshing to see, and I think it worked really well across the, the various chapters. Thank so, you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's important to know because how, yeah. what, a, you know, it's different. I think it though, like, for example, it's easy as a musician because musicians play together. So it's easy to, <laughs> right. you know, imaginatively transfer that to writing together. But what I think would be really interesting, and this is where looking at indigenous methods and theories and the way you're supposed to ground research from an indigenous perspective. What if you're, what if you're a political scientist looking at, you know, political systems or political change in the region, right? Or what if you're an Islamic studies person and you're studying certain aspects of Islam? How would, if you, if you, if you took seriously indigenous theories and methodologies of respect, of non-extractivism, of, you know, working on things that benefit the community, first and foremost, if you're, if you're going to extract their time, which is valuable to people, and knowledge, uh, what are you giving them? How does it benefit them? That's one of the core principles of indigenous theories and methodologies. You know, not just what benefits you in your career, but what gives something back to them other than a copy of your book in a language they may or may not read. <laughs> so that, you know, if you start doing that in other areas besides the kind of obvious example of art, um, which is inherently more collaborative, what would that mean for the epistemologies underlying this kind of research, you know, political science research anywhere or sociological research, anthropological research? It's already kind of taken that step, right, with para ethnography. And, uh, you know, it's really important because for me as a scholar, you know, I'm I'm talking with people who are, you know, as good, if not better musicians than me, who know all the languages I speak as good, if not better than me. A lot of them have degrees, advanced degrees, even though they're musicians. So they're not the typical what you imagine musicians to be. So we're actually peers. You know, the idea of the advanced, you know, really well-educated Westerner coming in and then interviewing the local person uh, from this very disparate position of intellectual and other power just doesn't exist here, right? It's very much, if anything, I'm below them. So how do we work together? And I think that should happen a lot more in the way people do, you know, political science or sociology everywhere. It's not just about the Middle East. It's everywhere we're outside our own culture. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope others will uh, uh, follow track. I'm, I'm certainly going to try to integrate that into my uh, my work. But, um, you know, uh, you cover a large swath of regions, very diverse. Um, 
a lot of the kind of background to the story are is the kind of time period of the Arab rebellions. Um, and part part of the, one of the key things, at least from my reading for continuing this work is uh, this transformation from from subculture to counterculture to revolutionary culture. And mm -hmm. you kind of see this across the, the various domains. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how music and then these kind of, uh, you know, uh, youth cultural contexts, uh, how do these connections between politics and cultural creativity intersect? Sure. Well, here's the simplest way to explain it, I think. You know, basically it turns out, and this became very apparent to me uh, when I was standing in Tahrir Square, you know, in like, I don't know, February 2nd or 3rd, 2011, and watching this whole thing unfold around me and and seeing all of my Meadowhead friends in the streets, you know, fighting and, and, and not just fighting, you know, against the thugs and stuff, but leading Tahrir. I mean, many of the people who were the main organizers of, of the Tahrir part of the revolution, who were part of the revolutionary youth, uh, were metalheads, were people who came out of the metal scene. And I mean, really came out of the scene. I don't mean they just occasionally listened to, you know, a, a metal band or something. They were metalheads I'd known since they were younger, who I'd known for years, who used to hang out in front of Hardee's and Zamalek wearing metal shirts, you know, real metalheads. And yet these were some of the most important people in this revolution. And what, what became clear to me was that the same skills it took to create a DIY subculture, musical subculture in an authoritarian society, not surprisingly, are pretty much very transferable to creating an underground political movement. You know, to be able to produce culture and disseminate it freely or cheaply away from the prying eyes of censors and governments which don't like you, which of course works with the metal scene, and to be able to bring people together in a kind of underground way, which the metal scene was very good at doing in a place like Egypt, having concerts even after the big satanic metal scare in 97. They would have concerts out in the desert and stuff. The scene kept going, even if more underground. And the change in technology, the arrival of um, digital means of literally freely producing music and this circulating it and consuming it completely freely outside of commodification and outside the ability of governments to control it, that was very easily transferred to you know, people working politically uh, during these moments of intense protest. So that was the first thing. Second of all, the music to me was always, and I talked about this in the first book, Heavy Metal Islam, the music was like the canary in the coal mine for these societies. Um, what the general health of the societies were, I was able to kind of see the correspondence between the health of the scenes, in other words, the extent to which they were being heavily repressed, the extent to which people couldn't really practice them openly at all, uh, and the health the health of the societies measured in terms of were they, you know, at least somewhat liberal culturally, or were they, did they have any room for political opening? What was the economy like? How bad was the economy? Was there any sense of hope? You know, and that, that idea, they, they start off as underground subcultures, which are really the temperature reading of the society. When there's a moment when the governments, when the authoritarian bargains that govern almost every society from Morocco to Pakistan, or at least to Iran, when that authoritarian bargain is just over, when there's nothing that the regimes could really offer this generation that comes 
that comes of age in the late 90s and especially in the mid 2000s. That generation really is the first generation that felt really hopeless. And I kept hearing this over and over when I talked to people. And so music, especially extreme music, became a means of catharsis, but also a means of imagination and creating these subcultures with people. And usually people who are into metal are actually really smart. And even if there are a lot of working class kids in Egypt who are into it or into or in Tunis or in Casablanca or wherever, but they were usually kids who were on the way to becoming more educated because to reach out and find metal even then was not so easy. It wasn't so natural. So you had to be the kind of person who, even if you came from a poor background, you might wind up in college, you might wind up somehow, you know, moving forward uh, intellectually compared to your peers or your family. And so the scenes really became ways of, of, of seeing how society was moving. And at a certain point, the subculture, in other words, kids who were just doing this music because they loved it, and it, like everywhere else where they have metal scenes, and it was a kind of cathartic release for them because, you know, the energy is especially useful to release through music. Uh, as uh, Salman Ahmed, who is the leader of the famous Pakistani rock band, rock metal Sufi rock band, Janoon once said to me, you know, the reason the mullahs hate us is where their competition right? Because we address many of the same issues and drives and, and anger that they do, but we channel it through music. And you could see this all through the region. So it starts off where that's the primary thing. But then as you get to the mid 2000s, 2005, six, I started seeing a lot of these young kids who are now college age or even just out of college, who were starting to get more political. And their increasing politicization was corresponding with the intensity of the scene. So to me, they started following the kind of typical path of a counterculture. And, you know, coming out of the U.S. Uh, and the 60s counterculture is obviously um, one good example of it. But so was that moment where hip hop was not just a subculture, but a counterculture. So was that moment where punk was not just, you know, a, a, a fashion style, but an actual political movement tied to anarchism and tied to a class dimensions and so on. So it really, you could see that it became counterculture, not all of it and not everywhere, but in a lot of places and most of it, uh, a lot of these kids who were doing it started becoming political, talking about protesting, talking about organizing, talking about joining various movements, especially in Morocco. You saw it in Tunis, you saw it in Palestine. Of course, hip hop in Palestine was highly political from the start. Um, Turkey. And then finally, with 2000, it really starts with 2006, five and six in Beirut where you had the cedar revolution, so to speak, or the cedar spring, where they kicked out the Syrians after 30 years of occupation. That was a huge moment. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of people who were at the forefront of that was the rising youth music movement in Lebanon, all those great indie bands and, and hip hop and rock bands that were starting to get internationally known. They were all out there. They were very much part of it. Then in 2009, you had an Iranian, all the Iranian metalheads I knew were on the streets fighting during the green wave, really politicized, really out there. And then, sadly, most of them had to leave Iran not long after that. So most of my Iranian metalhead friends are now living in L.A., happily, to be honest. Um, and then in, of course, the Arab world with the uh, uprisings of 2011, uh, you saw just not just metalheads, but especially hip hop. 
really being at the forefront of the protests, articulating people's fears and their anger and their demands. And more than that, you saw kids who were really the, the hardcore members of these scenes actually also deeply involved in the processes of the uprisings. In Tunisia, a lot of the metalheads and rappers were also hacktivists. They were really obviously good with coding, manipulating, and they were like hi hijacking like police security cameras so they could tell their friends where the cops were on and at any given moment when there were the running street battles between cops and, and protesters and stuff. And in, in Egypt, in Tahrir, they were literally running the square. So that's when it became clear to me that this these scenes which seemed to just matter on their own terms, actually had much larger relevance. Now, um, based both on perhaps some people's stereotypes about Muslim societies, hmm. and then also rooted in perhaps some people's stereotypes about uh, musical scenes, and especially things like hip hop and, and metal, hmm. um, you, you focus on women a lot. Uh, both as musicians yeah. making music and then also their kind of larger role on the scenes. And I think, uh, and I, what you tell us, I think probably, you know, is a similar kind of aha moment for readers that, that you had when you first discovered the metal scene. So can you tell us a little bit about what, what are women doing in this, this kind of context? Well, women are there from the beginning. Um, although they weren't always so accepted by their peers but they're very much a part of it. Uh, I can just tell you a funny little story of the first the first female kind of metal band I, I ever met, actually anywhere, but, but certainly in the region, was this band called Mystic Moods, which was a Moroccan thrash metal band started by these like four teenage girls from Casablanca, Rabat, I think they're from Casablanca. And, you know, they were kind of a, what you'd expect a teenage thrash metal band to sound like, a lot of anger, a lot of enthusiasm, not necessarily the greatest uh, talent ability yet because they're teenagers and, you know, it takes a long time to really do metal very well. Um, and But they actually wound up playing uh, this great festival, the Boulevard Festival, Boulevard des Zumezissiennes, it was called then, in Casablanca every year. One of the night, there were four nights. One night was always metal, and it was always an insane day. One day and night was devoted to just local and international metal artists. So it was really the proving ground. And they went up there, and they were doing their songs, and the crowd was like most metal shows, 70% men. And the guys were all booing them and get off the stage, you suck, you know, that kind of thing, which they actually did to other male metal bands when they weren't very good either. But the lead singer basically walked up to the front of the stage and looked at them and gave them all the middle finger. <laughs> and then the crowd went insane and they turned the crowd on a dime. And then they became patronized by the king. The king's daughters became friends with them. It's a very funny story. But like you wouldn't have expected that. If I wasn't there, I wouldn't have couldn't have believed that that happened except I looked at it happened I was like oh that's that's got to go in the book you know that's why I'm here it's just scenes like that and in Egypt amazing band since become dear friends uh massive scar era a uh, great all-female metal band, uh, which actually had an amazing violinist in it as well, who who uh, is now one of the most renowned, I think, kind of session or popular, you know, music musicians and producers in Egypt. So they were always there. And if you'd go to metal shows in Egypt, and I think I captured this in the film I did about the 
Egyptian metal scene and the revolution called Before the Spring, After the Fall, you could go to a metal show and you would see, you know, 800 kids slammed together like any show, but all the most of the women would be wearing hijab. There would be, they'd say in Egypt, Muhagaba, you know, standing next to young men, boys, you know, and they're all headbanging and dancing. You look at this and say, well, this is definitely not the way it, people imagine young women wearing headscarves are comporting themselves, you know. And yet there they are, and in the back a lot of times would be their parents watching, just like parents at metal shows across the world, trying to make sure their kids aren't completely losing it. And, you know, it's just normal. It's just normal. And everywhere you go, it's just, in fact, normal. And to us, it seems so abnormal, right? But in fact, it's just normal. And that, I think, is an amazing thing because it didn't always... It wasn't always normal in a place like Egypt or Morocco for to have female metalheads or female metal artists. That's for sure. The fact that it was becoming normal was really interesting. And then in the hip hop scene, you know, w- without a doubt, unquestionably, many of the most important and best rappers, uh, MCs, from the minute that um, that hip hop emerges in the late '90s, have been in in the Middle East and North Africa have been women, women MCs. And I try to talk about this a lot in Morocco, but in uh, also in Tunis, in Palestine, certainly in Iran, you know, some amazing female MCs, including Salome MC, who co-wrote the chapter on Iran with me in this book. So I just wanted to highlight how important a role women were playing in these movements, because especially when you talk about hip hop and metal and hardcore, you tend to focus on the men because they're so aggressive. The styles are so aggressive. So the men tend to dominate. But the reality is, it's not true. There's women there who are really important and really good. And even if there is the same kind of misogyny in these scenes as there are in every metal or hip hop scene in the world, the women are definitely there very increasingly prominent thanks to YouTube and other things. They don't need male gatekeepers anymore, right? They, they, they can put out a song and put it right on YouTube and it'll get 10 million views. So no one can stop them now. And that's really powerful. And they are critiquing men and they're critiquing the misogyny and the patriarchy in their own societies through the music. And when they get 10 million, 15, 20, 30 million views, some of the, the songs doing this, using the most contemporary sounds like, you know, um, trap, using trap, which in America has completely become depoliticized, even though the roots aren't, um, you know, kind of very formulaic, not very interesting, at least to me as a musician. But there, they're taking the sound of trap, which has a very strong aesthetic component and, and affective dimension. The, uh, the aesthetics of it call to mind certain symbols and feelings and ideas. They're using that to take you on journeys that are highly critical of the patriarchy and misogyny inherent in their society. So that, to me, is so important to highlight and to bring the voices out. So three of the people I work I wrote within the book are women who come out of these kind of scenes and have firsthand experience doing that. Mm. Now, uh, it's not always empowering in some places uh, to be part of these kind of musical cultures. People deal with harassment, sometimes imprisonment or police brutality. Um, and you you mentioned this across the spaces you look at. So can you talk about like some of the challenges um, participants uh, in these extreme youth music scenes uh, face? 
Well, certainly in the 90s and early 2000s, like the you know, if you're talking about metal, metal becomes fairly common across the Middle East and North Africa in the mid to late 90s. Most of the region has these what we could call satanic metal scares by the mid late 90s. Um, it's the biggest one is in Egypt in 1997. 114 kids are arrested. The Grand Mufti puts out a statement saying they should be executed for apostasy unless they repent. So serious stuff. Um, it goes on in Lebanon, in Iran, and elsewhere. Um, and of course, that's the moment where you have the really conservative tide sweeping over popular cultures uh, across the region. Um, this continues really to the mid-2000s. By then, things start to change. Morocco, I talk about in Heavy Metal Islam, was probably the first country where you see the change. 14 metalheads were arrested in 20, in 2003 uh, for being Satan worshippers, just totally ludicrous. And they fight back and they, they fight against the charges and they start holding metal shows outside the courthouse. They start an international campaign in French. The Le Monde covers it. You know, they get all this French media attention and they win. The verdicts are overturned and the scene just explodes. The Boulevard Festival I mentioned had maybe 30,000 kids in 2002. By the first year I went in 2005, it had 140,000 people over four days. So the scenes, so Morocco was really the harbinger because it was a the first place ever kids were being repressed by their government fought back and won. They actually won. So it was a sign of this kind of opening. And then by 2005, 2006, even in a place like Egypt, you metal was sort of really making a comeback and people didn't care. I remember meeting with someone I knew from the Brotherhood. I said, so what are you guys, what's your problem with metal? And he was like, we don't, I don't have a problem with metal. I could care less. That's like last year's news. You know, we don't care about metal anymore. We're trying to get in parliament again. We're trying to get legalized. We don't care what music anyone listens to anymore. You know, that's, that's just not what we're about. Now, how, how, how much his view represented the Muslim Brotherhood leadership, I can't say. But there was clearly a change in the way religious people were viewing these kinds of music. And hip hop was, of course, even less problematic uh, than, um, than metal for a variety of reasons. It was poetry. People didn't dress so strangely. They dressed in baggy clothes, which were a little bit less, uh, you know, <clears throat> more halal, we could say, than tight jeans and black t-shirts with strange symbols on them. And uh, but really, by the late, you know, second half of the 2000s, you really just see that it, that religious forces and because of that, governments are no longer so interested. And so they're in, in persecuting young people because of the music they listen to. So it really becomes an opening all across the region from really Morocco straight across to Pakistan. Pakistan is a great example because Pakistan has, you know, one of the most insane music scenes anywhere on earth. Uh, when I first went there in 2006, seven, you know, there were like 13 music video channels. I mean, imagine if, if there were 13 versions of MTV in the US, that's how important you know, music is in a culture like Pakistan, where we think of the Taliban and all the violence they do and how against music they are. But, you know, Pakistan, North Indian music, you can't think of Pakistani Islam without music, right? Without Kawali, without just all the great Sufi music. You really can't think of Islam without music, in fact. So it just was no longer an issue in most places, except even Saudi Arabia started allowing uh metal shows much more openly by the and now you can go to metal festivals so 
It's just changed a lot. What the line is now is clearly politics. Play whatever you want, say anything bad about whatever the name of the ruler is, and then we got a problem with you. And so on the one hand, it led to a huge, you know, it made it much easier to do the music. But on the other hand, once you take the politics out, all right, because now kids have to decide if it was already, if it was completely underground anyway, then you might as well be political, right? Because it doesn't matter. It's not like there's an alternative. But if suddenly you can make a choice, I can actually get money from the government. I can actually be, you know, be official. I could actually get money to go to play at the, you know, Hellfest or or whatever, or Wacken in Germany, or I can go to jail for five years because I said something bad against (laughs) against, uh, the, you know, the king or the president. Most people are going to start saying, I'm just going to take the money. And um, that really becomes a divide now in the last 10 years or so since the uprisings. You see musicians who either became apolitical, musicians who actually supported the regimes uh, in Morocco. The great example of this anywhere, I think, is someone like the Moroccan rapper Don Big, who when I first met him in 2005 was known as a quote-unquote social justice rapper who was rapping against the king and against the excesses of the Mahzen and the regime, but then became, and the king saw that he was very useful, invested money in him, became friends. And of course, when 2011 happened, uh, Don Big was completely against the revolutionaries and really took the side of the regime. So you see that. And then the musicians who remain true to their political roots, sadly, most of them uh, were jailed most of them who got out of jail are now in exile. And so that's really the the tragedy of the last 12 years is that so much of the really great musicians who also were trying to do something good politically for their generation are gone. They're, they're not in the region. And the new generation has had to figure out since we can't be political, but we don't want to just be government mouthpieces or just you know, do music that doesn't mean anything, what do we do? And that's really what's interesting for me as someone who studies this today is how is the new generation, since so many of their elders are out of the country in exile because of their music, how are they reformulating the idea of doing music that is, you know, politically relevant, develop skill sets that can be useful within civil society the way the first generation was. That's, I think, where the future of looking at these musics is right now. Mm. Yeah, that's a good uh, forward thinking for other listeners who might be doing similar work here, too. Um, obviously, there's there's tons of stuff in the book uh, <laughs> we won't get into, uh, but I do want to give you an opportunity um, if there was any a story, uh, a thread, a key conclusion, something that we didn't get to talk to. Uh, are there any kind of last thoughts on the book you want listeners to know uh, to maybe have them go out and read the book or be aware of? I think there are two really interesting stories, which I would like to put out there. Three, maybe. Um, first is the title of the book. The title comes from the leader of one of the greatest bands, I think, in the world. It's a traditional um, band, uh, Nile Delta band called El Tambora out of Egypt, out of Cairo and Port Said. And I was talking with the the leader, Zakaria Ibrahim, who's a good friend of mine. And whenever I'm there, I sort of go on their little tours with them and just hang out because I think their music is so insane and so amazing. And, you know, the Simpsonia is a kind of lute, or not a lute, a lyre kind of thing, 
Um, and it's it's so old in Egypt that it's literally on the stele and in you know or on, carved into columns and you know in Luxor and stuff. So it's an instrument that is as old as Egypt. And uh, he he helped revive the tradition of the virtuosic musical tradition of the Simsimia. And and but it's really hard, especially what with you know with the government crackdowns and the lack of tourism because of of uh, the crackdowns after the revolution. I was with him in Port Said one night. It must have been three in the morning after his band finished the set, and we were standing on the beach looking at the ocean. I just said, you know, um, um, how 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 you keep doing this because he's about 70 years old it's always you know hustling to make get some kind of money or grants to keep the whole operation going and he just said to me you know he said basically we'll play you know i'll play till i die you know and as soon as he said that i said i looked at him i was like well thank you because you just gave me the title <laughs> of my book can i use that and he's like absolutely but the sincerity of it like it was just said out of a combination of exasperation at the situation, the political economic situation, resignation that this is the life he chose, uh, you know, to do this, and determination, you know, that, yeah, I'm going to keep doing this because I know this is our music. This is our history, you know, the music that he's doing with his band. He's like, we were resisting in Port Said, where he grew up. You know, we resisted the Ottomans. We resisted the French. We resisted the British. We resisted Nasser. We resisted the Israelis. We resisted Mubarak. You know, we all we've done in Port Said or what became Port Said is resist for as long as, as long as our history goes back. So that and the music, our music is music of resistance. And they were, of course, famously in Tahrir during the 18 days singing for everyone one of the great videos of of that moment was them in the square so that's one because it just meant to me you know that's what musicians are they just they have he has no choice there's nothing else he was going to do except be a musician and bring this music to everyone he could and and whatever until he's dead that's it and that's why all the musicians you know you talk to any metalhead actually anywhere in the world you talk to metalheads and why are you a metalhead you know why haven't you moved on and started listening to whatever or something else like they look at you like you're crazy. Like, how could I do that? This is the, my music till I die. This is it. And so it's just a beautiful moment. Um, th that's, I think, the most important thing. A another one sort of more political in nature or um, political philosophical is, as, as listeners might know, lately there's been this whole idea of decoloniality uh, coming out of this certain kind of Latin America, Latin American political theory called decoloniality or decolonial theory has finally begun to enter Middle East studies or Arab studies, Islamic studies, although most people confuse decolonial for decolonizing. They don't really use it correctly the way the Latin American scholars who developed the theory intended. But there was a, a really interesting festival in Morocco called the Hard Zazat, which is a combination of the of the word for hardcore, hard, and then the town, the beautiful town, some of you might know, of Wazerzat in Morocco, you know, which is a beautiful old medieval mud brick town and stuff. Uh, so they put the two together, hard Zazat, and they would go out in the desert and have this completely DIY, totally hardcore punk metal festival. Only about 80, 90 people would go. No one even knew where it was. It was kind of hidden. They'd always have bands coming in from the region, from Europe, hardcore bands who would come and play there. And 
they had a huge, uh, I told about this in the Morocco chapter, there was a huge controversy because in 2019, they decided not to invite any European bands to play there because they, as a kind of decolonial move, um, which I thought was really interesting. And they had some rational reasons like, look, you guys always come here, but when are we ever invited to you? You know, we need to focus on building our own scene and not just relying on on European bands to come. But the European bands, it's totally true, right? They enjoy supporting it because they love going to Morocco for two weeks and hanging out in the desert and playing music and partying. So uh, there was this fight that developed between the the um, the European bands that felt and the European scene, which felt but these Moroccans were being ungrateful. And the Moroccans who were like, no, we, we you know, you can come and hang out. You're just not going to play this year. And I thought this was a really fascinating scene. But the other thing was, while they were talking about de- being decolonial, of course, this no one in, in there, and they had a very long critique of what they meant by that. Of course, they never touched on the king, because if they did, that would have been the end of it. They'd all be in jail immediately. So, which really isn't actually decolonial. You can't be decol- you can't have a decolonial analysis that doesn't look at the Maxen and the king. But of course, the political constraints were such that they already were constantly on the run from the local police. If they actually publicly were having a, a real political analysis at the core of the system, they they simply couldn't exist. So that negotiation, trying to claim a philo- an epistemological viewpoint like decoloniality, as musicians, hardcore musicians, who are really trying to think this through, trying to deploy their own power against other hardcore musicians who are their biggest supporters, but not against the political system which actually could do them in. That, to me, was a really fascinating fascinating um, struggle that everyone had to negotiate, and I could see all sides of it. Um, and. Uh, yeah, and then just finally, I guess the final thing perhaps is um, being in Palestine in 2019, right before um, right before COVID hit, um, at the Palestine Music Expo, which is this amazing festival that Palestinian artists have started, um, basically to show the world, you know, that Palestine has an amazing music scene with great artists. And um, Brian Eno had come the year before. How the hell the Israelis let him in, given his very well-known anti, you know, his BDS stance? Uh, he still snuck in because he kind of just looks like an old guy coming in. He doesn't look like a huge rock star, so he just slipped in. He was there. Other people were there. The the scenes were amazing. Um, there were supposed to be artists from Gaza coming, but the Israelis blocked them because it was during the March of Return, where there was all this intense fighting at the borders of Gaza. Um, at Erez Crossing and other places along the side border, which I, I can't think of the name. Um, but this uh, this rapper, MC Gaza, did a video where he, during the fighting, he filmed a music video uh, in the middle of the fighting. So he was filming a lot of it with just handheld cameras and drones. While the tires are burning and bullets are flying by, he's filming a music video to this song, which said the title of the song was basically, we're not afraid of your bullets. And he finished that and sent it to PMX in Palestine. So we were all sitting there in Ramallah in this ballroom of a hotel where there's about 1,500 people for the festival. And then they, they, they broadcast the video, the premiere of this video. And I'd never seen a video shot in the middle of a war. You know, that was really intense. And the sound and the crowd just lost it completely. And again, it was just this there could he could have done a report live from 
you know, he could have just done a live report where, oh, I'm standing here and the Israelis are shooting or whatever. Instead, he, did a, instead he recorded a music video. And it was just, uh, you know, it was just absurdly powerful. And that, again, just showed me, you know, when musicians really take their politics seriously, they can create culture that is just so powerful uh, that it's almost um, it's almost ineffable. It's almost sublime. You know, meaning you literally don't know what to do with all of this information that is hitting you at once. Aesthetic, political, cultural, it's just too much. And that's what makes it so interesting to study. Yeah. So that'd be just three, but I could give you 50. <laughs> yeah, I, and there's, plen there's plenty in the book. Yeah. Um, but uh, that last point is also good because I, I did find myself uh, I, while I was reading through the book, uh, like it took a while because I kept stopping and like, searching stuff on spotify and on youtube yeah. and and so it is a, this kind of whole uh this whole kind of comprehensive uh, uh, uh approach when you're in the book so uh, well, it, it is i great. do have a spotify playlist i may i created never mind the problems of spotify that could be <laughs> another show but it, people use it and it is uh so i did create a spotify playlist title we'll play till we die music from the book or something like that if anyone's interested but uh, everyone I talk about in the book, they can find online, either on YouTube. If they're well known, they're all on YouTube. They're all on Spotify or Bandcamp or, you know, one of those uh, Apple Music and so on. So the music is, is quite easy nowadays compared to the first uh, book, you know, when it was MySpace, if anyone even remembers mm -hmm. MySpace. Uh, now it's very easy to find these artists. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, I hope people will listen to them because the music is really special, even if you don't like the music, uh, per se, if you're not a metalhead, I wasn't actually a huge extreme metal fan when I started this journey, but I really grew to appreciate it. Uh, and I think it teaches us a lot. And especially the the way, you know, someone once said to me, if there's going to be a new Led Zeppelin, it's going to they're going to come out of the Middle East. And what they meant is the way a band like Led Zeppelin, just to circle back to the very beginning of our discussion, the ability to take styles from all over the world, especially Middle Eastern, Indian styles, and combine them to create a music that never existed before, where that's not happening really in the, in the U.S. anymore, Europe, where that's happening, where the boundaries, the frontiers of musical expression live today is in the Middle East. It lives in Africa. It lives in Pakistan. It lives in these places where people are so thoroughly versed in the dominant forms of popular music in Korea as well with K-pop, but are completely twisting it and adding new elements that were never added before. And they're making something radically new. And that's, um, that's to me is ultimately why it makes this whole thing worth it, you know, is because they are the cutting edge of global artistic production and they should be respected and studied as such. Yeah. Great. Uh, great book. Great talk, um, Mark. Before I let you go, can you can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're you're up to now? You always seem like you're doing multiple things at once, but well, um, most of my work these days, I I've been working the last three years at a refugee camp in northern Kenya called uh, Kakuma 
refugee camp, which is the second biggest in Africa, has musicians from almost two dozen countries. And uh, it's part of, I, I've been working on this project I call the Funk Belt, basically looking at funk music in Africa stretching across from Senegal to Ethiopia between the Sahel and the equator. So where all that great Afro funk, African funk, which is my favorite music in the world, has been produced since the 70s. So I've been working with my friend and colleague, uh, Banning Iyer from the great NPR music show, Afropop Worldwide. We've been doing, we've been studying and putting together a book and maybe a documentary series on Afro funk across this belt of countries. But the main thing I'm doing now is in this refugee camp, uh, Kakuma created a group with some local Kenyan um, comrades that brings traditional instruments to musicians who are trapped in this refugee camp. And Kakuma camp is an absolutely amazing place, but because the Kenyan government doesn't let the people leave, really, it's sort of like Gaza in a way. People have been born lived, had children, and died in this camp. It's been there since 1991. And so I, I met these Burundian musicians who were literally playing rusted out oil drums because they couldn't get their drums, which are the Burundi, the Royal Burundian drums are so famous. You know, they're like 80 kilos, you know, meter, a meter and a half size drums that people carry on their heads and they play 20 at a time. It's one of the most amazing musical scenes. So we realized, my gosh, we could just without much money, we should start bringing instruments to these musicians. And we started that. And within a year, it grew from 14 people who were interested to over 600 people. And, it, and now we just opened branches in three other countries in Rwanda, Congo, and, um, and Uganda. And I'm heading to them in, in, in the beginning of June for the summer. And um, Yo-Yo Ma is coming and a lot of other people are coming. And now we're, people are starting to understand that a place like Kakuma, a refugee camp, which we think of as a place of despair and, you know, the end of the world where there's nothing left, is in fact the beginning. It's a place of hope and incredible music. You just need to give people the tools to help reclaim their cultures, you know, and, and conserve, as we say, conserve and compose their cultures. So we've been quite working with UNESCO and UNHCR, and uh, it's just very exciting to be able to do that and to change the narrative around refugees and thinking of refugees as our future, as everyone's collective future, rather than just the past we should forget about. So, of course, as someone who comes out of Palestine's work, that's obviously was already very important to me. But to see it in Africa at a much bigger scale uh, really hit home why that's so important and why culture is so important. Mm. So great, they can Mark. see that at uh, kakuma-sound.org, K-A-K-U-M-A-sound.org. And they could see lots of great music and videos and stuff. Awesome. Well, good luck and uh, and thank you. Yeah, keep keep up that wonderful work and I uh, look thank forward so to seeing for your uh, your your project on the the funk belt. That sounds amazing as well. Me too. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Mark. It was great to talk to you. And thanks thank for you. joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. Well, thank you, and thank you to all the listeners for sticking around and listening to it. That was my conversation with Mark Levine about We'll Play Till We Die, Journeys Across a Decade of Revolutionary Music in the Muslim World, published with the University of California Press in 2022. Thanks again for listening to New Books and Islamic Studies.